Good morning. If you have a Bible, could you please take it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, and we are um, we're going to conclude this three-part series that we've had on, on a more excellent way. We've considered the necessity of love from verses 1 through 3 in this chapter. We've looked at the nature of Christian love in verses 4 through 7. And finally, we come in verses 8 to 13 to the reality that love never ends. Nothing lasts forever. Have you ever said that? We use that phrase from, from time to time. Nothing lasts forever. Usually, we're probably talking about some appliance that we have to replace or a pair of shoes that have fallen apart because in this world, things wear out and they break down. And if they don't wear out or break down, they become obsolete or outdated. Think about your favorite shirt. If you wore it enough, it either wore out and, and broke down, or you got to the place where it was obsolete and outdated, and you decided you didn't want to wear it anymore. Everything, nothing lasts forever. I have a laptop from when I was in college. It's in my basement. It was old when I graduated in 2003, so just imagine how outdated and, and obsolete it is now. I don't know why it's still there. <laughs> so taking into account the scientific law that matter cannot be created or destroyed, it's a universal truth that nothing lasts forever. But what if you could find something that did? Something that lasted forever, something that would never wear out, it would never break down, something that would never become obsolete or outdated. We've been looking at the most excellent way of love that's found in 1 Corinthians 13, and as Paul draws this chapter to a close, he exalts love as the very thing that will last forever. And for that reason, he again calls us to follow him down this trail that he has blazed by announcing that love is the most excellent way because it is eternal. We're going to meditate on that big idea today. Love is the most excellent way. Why? Because it is eternal. Remember, the Corinthian church was concerned about spiritual greatness, which was causing problems within their congregation. However, when you think about it, if you could separate that desire for spiritual greatness from the sins of, of pride and, and selfishness, a desire for spiritual greatness is not necessarily a bad one, is it? The longing of the heart of the, of the true Christian is to know God better, to grow deeper and deeper in our spiritual lives. We who belong to Christ strive to live in this world as citizens of heaven. Our hope is not for greatness and acclaim in this world, but to find ourselves seeking after the things that last into eternity. And that's a, that's a good desire, isn't it? The, the danger that we face, though, is, is that we could devote our lives to things that in the end don't actually last. We could talk about money or prestige or worldly influence or popularity and, and fame and and all these other things that we see in the world that our sinful hearts naturally seek after that will not last forever. But we could also talk about seeking greatness even within the church or even within God's kingdom, but seeking it in all of the wrong places 
and for all of the wrong reasons. And into our desire for greatness, into our desire for eternal significance, which is, is good, God's word holds out to us the pursuit of love as the best way to choose. He says if you want to be spiritually great, if you want to invest your life in something that matters, don't invest in these things that are going to fade. Invest in something that will actually last forever. And he says to us that love is the most excellent way. Why? Because it is eternal. And if love is eternal, if it lasts forever, then pursuing love above everything else is the way to true and enduring greatness and joy in our lives. So with this in mind, I want to read 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Again, our focus is on verses 8 through 13, but let's hear this whole chapter. God's word says to us in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the most excellent way because it is eternal. Remember that the context of this chapter has to do with the giving of and the using of spiritual gifts within the church. You see that in chapter 12 as well as in chapter 14, and this is sandwiched right in the middle between those two chapters. Paul talks about the various gifts in chapter 12, encouraging the church to use their specific gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. But while he's already acknowledged the importance and the blessing of the gifts of the Spirit, he's going to do that again in chapter 14. He says here in in verse 8, though, setting that context, he says, recognize this. Recognize that the gifts of the Spirit will pass away. Recognize that the gifts of the Spirit will pass away. Paul wants us to know that unlike love, the gifts of the Spirit that he's been talking about are not eternal. 
Remember, there, there was this massive amount of confusion and competition that's happening in the Corinthian church. And one place that it was cropping up was during their services of worship. They would gather to encourage one another through the, the use of their particular gifts. But in exercising their specific spiritual gifts, they would end up either doing nothing or, or causing harm through the use of their gifts. And much of this was tied to the ranking of the different gifts that they participated in, to the way that they elevated certain gifts above others. I played soccer from about first grade through my freshman year in high school. And as a kid playing soccer, it was obvious to me at least that the people who scored the goals, they were the most important people on the field. So when I slowly found that my skill set was more at home in the goalie box, uh, I got a little jealous of the smaller, faster guys who got all the glory when they scored. Because while it, it's not true in reality, there seemed to be a, a ranking of positions on the field. And the guy that's standing at the other end of the field, sort of trapped in this box while everyone else is down there scoring the goals, well, you just feel like you rank a little bit lower, you know? And a similar kind of ranking can happen in the church with the gifts of the Spirit. Because there's some gifts that, for whatever reason, are just a little bit flashier. They're the ones that get you standing up here on a Sunday. They're the ones that come with the title that sometimes we desire. The illustration of the body in chapter 12 was, was meant to fight against this idea, showing the necessity of each and every part of the body, just how you need every part of your body to to function properly. And then in chapter 14, Paul's going to show that the way the Corinthians were ranking these different gifts was, was misguided. Remember what their favorite gift was? It was speaking in tongues. This ecstatic, otherworldly speaking was seen as a sign of true and, and deep spirituality, which meant that people desired to speak in tongues often because of the apparent spiritual maturity that it displayed to others. But Paul refocuses the church in chapter 14, and he says that the focus of the gifts, especially as the church gathers together, should not be on promoting ourselves. It should be on others and on order. Others and order. Chapter 14 is not our text for today, but can we look at it? Can we talk about it just for a little bit? Uh, because that focus on others and on order is a good one to process and to meditate on as you think about using your gift within the church. So do I recognize that my gift is for the building up of others, not the building up of myself? And am I using my gift in such a way? And when we gather together, is, is there an order to what we do that allows people to be built up in their faith? Order doesn't mean that there can't be spontaneity in what we do, nor does it mean that our worship services are somehow performative in some way but it means that we structure our time together with a focus on allowing the people of God to hear God's word, whether through music or reading or preaching or conversation, and to thereby leave with a deeper understanding of God, a deeper understanding of the gospel, and a greater desire to share the love of God with others. Others and order. And yet even before this instruction on others and order, Paul exposes the foolishness of ranking spiritual gifts not just in comparison to others, but ranking spiritual gifts in comparison to love. Because these spiritual gifts, including the ones that we highly prize and the ones that, that, that build up the church most visibly, they will all pass away. There's a lot of discussion about verse 8. Verse 8 
Here in chapter 13, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Some of these gifts are to pass away and others are said to cease. There's a discussion that centers around, especially the gift of tongues, where where people try to discern whether or not the gift of tongues is something that should be practiced by the church today. There are those who would say that while prophecies and knowledge are said to pass away, tongues is said to cease, and that difference of wording means that the gift of tongues is no longer given by the Spirit in this present age. Possibly. Uh, but I think it's, probably more, it's, it's more probable that Paul is just using parallel words in a very poetic chapter to explain that these gifts, all three of them, will eventually pass away and be unnecessary in the light of eternity. And his emphasis seems to be on when that's going to happen. Very simply put, Paul places his discussion of love into the context of a discussion about time. Having helped us recognize that the gifts of the Spirit will pass away, he says, compare the present to the future. That's the next thing that he wants us to do. Compare the the present with the future. And in doing so, he's continuing to help us to see our current reality in the light of our eternal hope. He wants us to to consider how the hope of the new kingdom changes the way that we walk in this present world. Of course, these words were written nearly 2,000 years ago, right? So we need to ask another question, which is the present that Paul is talking about, is that my present? Or was that Paul's present? Did, Did... we at some point become a part of the future that Paul was talking about, or is Paul's now still now? (laughs) Well, he talks about the present and the future in three different ways, and I I think as we look at his words and his illustrations, we're going to begin to get an answer to that question. But if I could tip my hand a little bit, I, I believe that Paul's present reality is also our present reality, and that the future he was looking forward to is a future that we also are looking forward to and waiting for. And yet, while it's something that we're waiting for, it's also something that has broken into our world. The future that Paul describes is still future. But we can also ask, can we find ways to bring that future reality into our present experience? And I think the answer is yes. So let's look at, we're talking about comparing the present and the future, and Paul talks about the the present and the future in three different ways, describes them in three different ways. So let's consider how the the future beauty of the new kingdom of love can begin to break out here in our present reality. So he talks about the present and the future, and he describes it first in terms of the partial versus the perfect. The partial versus the perfect. Look at verses 9 and 10. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. As I was reading that, I thought someone could write a great song. There's a lot of alliteration in there, isn't there? When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I don't know. Could be fun. Um, we come to a, another key question, though. There's, always, there's lots of questions in this passage, and the question is, what's the perfect? Uh, the perfect, when the perfect comes. What what is Paul talking about? There are those that would argue that the perfect here refers to the maturity of the church in some way or to the completion of the canon of Scripture, meaning that uh, our belief that the the 66 books of the Old and New Testament form the entirety of God's inspired revelation to the church, and that's the perfect now that that has come. 
And if either of those things are the case, then the gifts of prophecy and of tongues and of knowledge have ceased with the arrival of that perfection. Another option is to say that the perfect refers to the coming kingdom, to the return of Christ when he ushers in the perfection of the kingdom of God. And I think that is the plainest reading of the text, especially in light of verse 12, which we're going to look at, which is parallel to this idea and seems to talk clearly about a day when we're going to see Christ face to face, which has not happened yet. So what all this means is that, that right now, this present age is the, is the partial age. It's an age of partiality. Our present time is a time where we see God's power and presence in part. And therefore, the gifts mentioned in verse 8 are all partial. The gift of prophecy reveals truth in part. But when the perfection of the kingdom comes, truth will be perfectly revealed. Tongues communicate realities about God in part. But when perfection comes, the reality of who God is will be perfectly seen. The gift of special knowledge gives us deep insight into spiritual things, but it is still partial insight. But in the full presence of God, the gift of special knowledge will be obsolete because perfect knowledge will have arrived. What a day. These gifts of the Spirit are not useless here and now, but we need to realize that they are partial and they are incomplete. Like the Corinthians, we can begin to think that these kinds of revelatory gifts are are greater than they are. But there's a day of perfection coming when all of these partial gifts that we love so much or that we seek after so strongly, they'll be gone. They will not last. Which gives us a healthy perspective on the gifts that the Spirit gives us. They're, They're like all that is in this world. Remember, nothing lasts forever. Even the gifts of the Spirit that we are given will not last forever. Which is why it's so important what Paul makes clear at the beginning of verse 8, that there is something that does last forever. Love never ends. It never fails. Love, unlike all of these gifts of the Spirit, will endure forever. As we seek to love God and love others, we are investing ourselves in something that lasts forever. Forever, which means that to neglect love in the pursuit of greater spiritual gifts is to, to choose to seek after things that are partial and incomplete, while this thing that, that will never end is held out to us as the thing that we should be pursuing. As you think about the past and the or the, the present and the future, now is the age of the partial, but the perfect is coming. And the second way that Paul distinguishes the present and the future is by speaking about immaturity versus maturity. Immaturity versus maturity. He says that what is true of himself is true of everyone, namely that there was a time when he was a child, and as a child he acted in childish ways. He spoke like a child, from the babblings of, a, of an infant to the two or three word sentences of a toddler to the simple sentences of a young child. He thought like a child. He was not concerned with things like paying the bills or planning the week out. He woke up and he said, I'm hungry. I'll eat. I'm excited. I'll scream. I'm bored. I'll whine. I have money. I will spend it. (laughs) And closely tied to that, he reasoned like a child. As a child, 
Uh, my good friend Jake and I, he's a neighbor, we put my little sister's red and blue little tykes slide. Do you know those slides? You know what I'm talking about? We thought it'd be a great idea to put it in the neighbor's tree because we reasoned with our childlike reasoning that it would be really fun to slide into a drop-off, that that would be a good idea. And we further reasoned that Jake's one-inch gym mat would be certainly enough cushion and padding to, to catch us when we hit the ground. But there were adults around us, and they reasoned much differently. Uh, the neighbors didn't want to get sued. Our parents didn't want to go to the emergency room. Uh, but none of that crossed our, crossed our minds. It, it all seemed like a very well-thought-out plan. It kind of still does to me in some ways, I guess. But, uh, but why did it seem wise to me? Because we were children, and we reasoned like children. And now I'm a parent. Now I'm the guy that says, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> I have matured, as we all do, hopefully. And as we mature, we put away childish things. We give up childish ways. We speak and we think and we reason with greater maturity. At least we try to. And Paul wants us to see that the present age is an age of, of childish ways. But there is a day coming when we will be fully mature. And I think actually it's with this illustration that we begin to see how the future is able to break into the present. Because I don't think Paul is saying that the church and that individual Christians remain children in their spiritual maturity, and it's only when Christ returns that we actually become mature in our faith. That can't be what he's saying, is it? The author of Hebrews, uh, rather the, the New Testament in general, is always calling us to, to mature in our faith. The author of Hebrews calls believers to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and to go on into maturity. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. If you want to study a parallel passage to 1 Corinthians 13, check out Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. There's a lot of really amazing parallels. The same context, it's spiritual gifts. And Paul says that the gifts were given to the church, quote, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. And he's got a great illustration about children being tossed by, by the waves. And here, Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church and us to move away from an immature and a childish way of thinking about spiritual gifts and about spiritual greatness. He wants us to see that all of these external shows of spiritual power are not what we need to be chasing after. It's not what we need to be preoccupied with. The gifts of the Spirit are helpful for the building up of the church, but they become a root that we trip over when we imagine that possessing them makes us more spiritual. Or, that, or, or, or if we use them absent of love, they are useless. In contrast, we're called to a maturity that sees the eternal value of love above all else. Love for God and love for others. So we're again faced with the question of how we measure success in the church. How do we know who is mature? How do we know who is spiritual? Doctors have growth charts for children so that they can make sure a child is maturing in the way that they should. And Paul here helps us to see that if we're, if we're using the growth chart of spiritual gifts to measure someone's spiritual maturity or our own spiritual maturity 
or our church's spiritual maturity, we need a new chart. That chart doesn't work. The chart of spiritual gifts is not a measure of spiritual maturity. If we're growing in spiritual gifts, but not in Christian love, we are not growing. We are not maturing. We're not bringing the eternal reality of love into this present age. We are investing ourselves in things that will not last, things that will fade and fail. The third and final way that Paul talks about the present and the future is through a comparison between seen dimly versus seen fully. Seen dimly versus seen fully. Paul uses an illustration here that compares looking at a reflection in a mirror to looking at someone face to face. Now to be clear, I am not an expert on ancient mirrors. <laughs> but from everything that I've read, they were nowhere near as accurate and clear as our modern day mirrors. And as I read that, I thought, wow, what a beautiful thing for centuries. Nobody had mirrors. It just, you just didn't really know what you looked like when you walked out the door. Kind of a blessing in some ways. Um, in fact, in Paul's day, they probably were mostly made out of polished metal, um, which means that you could see yourself in these mirrors, but, but not with complete clarity and probably with a little bit of distortion. And I think that's the, the, what he's drawing on. So when you read mirror, you think, I can see myself very clearly. Paul's thinking, eh, you can't really totally see yourself. There's some distortion. And he says that in this present age, we look at ourselves in a mirror that helps us to see ourselves, but not with perfect clarity. To, to draw in the previous illustration, our vision is partial. Our vision is immature. Our mirrors function much better today, don't they? But we should also recognize that just because we have clearer mirrors doesn't mean that we see ourselves rightly. Each of us looks at our reflection, not simply with physical eyes, but with all the pieces of our stories, all of the baggage that we have of comparing ourselves to others. Even if the image that we see is crystal clear, it's distorted. In fact, every image in a mirror is reversed. And it's only a reflection of our physical self. The mirror doesn't reveal your heart and your soul. But says Paul, there's a day coming when we will see clearly. But here's where this illustration goes off a little bit for me. If I'm reading it right, and you can help me um, during our meal, help me think about it. But the illustration goes from looking in a mirror to looking face to face. It would seem with God, right? It's not ourselves that we see anymore, it's God. Or is it both? Paul moves from looking at this reflection to now looking at God. And what is plain is that we will see clearly in the coming age. How will we see clearly? Not by looking at a mirror, but by looking at God face to face. And in seeing God face to face, what happens? We move from knowing in part to knowing fully. What do we know fully? Maybe we know ourselves fully. Maybe we know God fully and continue to know him more and more fully. Maybe we know love fully. I wonder, does Paul have the image of God that is in us as human beings in mind when he writes this, this illustration? Is he saying that 
as we look at ourselves in a mirror or simply as we reflect on our lives and on the life of our church, we see some reflection of who God is in us because we're made in his image and because we are, are filled with, with his spirit as God's people. But the image is distorted, isn't it? Because we're sinful and because we can't see clearly. But there's a day coming when we move from seeing reflections to seeing God face to face. And in seeing him fully, we know fully. He says we know fully even as we are fully known. Present tense. We know fully even as right now we are fully known. What a thought. You are fully known. And not by someone else, by God. Our, our own self-image, our own knowledge of ourselves, it's so distorted. It's like an image in a funhouse mirror or in polished brass or like the image in a perfectly normal mirror that we look at with judgmental eyes. We look at ourselves, whether it's our physical appearance or as we reflect on our hearts and our lives, and we both think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and we think way less of ourselves than we ought to think, often at the exact same time. But God sees us. He knows us perfectly. You are perfectly known by the God of the universe. And here's the wonder of the gospel for the Christian, is that God perfectly knew us before the foundation of the world, chose us out of his good pleasure to be his children. Not because of anything in us, but because of everything in him. And yet because of our sin, we're naturally separated from God and in our own efforts, there's nothing that we can do to restore our broken relationship between us and our creator. So because there's nothing that we can do, God did something. God loved the world in this way. He sent his only son into the world to live the life of righteousness that we could not, the life of love that we could not, and then to die the death that we deserve because of our sin. And he calls all people, maybe he calls you specifically today, and he invites everyone to turn away from sin and to come back to him, trusting that because of his death on our behalf and his resurrection, we can find forgiveness and we can find new life, and we, be, we can begin to walk this path of perfect eternal love until the day that we see him face to face. I think that gospel reality and this illustration of seeing in a mere dimly calls we who are Christians into a, a very simple but I think a very powerful application. And it's this. Admit that we see dimly. Admit that you see dimly. Admit that your vision is distorted. Admit that your perspective is limited. Admit that you know in part. Could the source of division in our world in part be the fact that we have a whole bunch of blind people walking around thinking they have 20-20 vision? Could the fighting in your home be because children and parents, husbands and wives, Brothers and sisters believe they see everything clearly, 
when in reality their vision is distorted. And if someone would just say, you know what, I see dimly, it might bring some light. Could the gossip in your workplace be a whole bunch of people with partial knowledge talking like they understand everything? Could the strife in the church, could the division in our churches and amongst churches in general be in part because we imagine that we see everything clearly when in fact our vision is weak and narrow? And what if along with the humility of admitting that we see dimly, we stopped looking at our own reflections, we stopped looking at everyone else, and we began looking at the one that we will look at for all eternity? Do you think there'll be mirrors in the new kingdom? This passage makes me wonder if maybe there won't be. Because in the new kingdom, it would seem that the, the way we come to know ourselves is by seeing not a clearer vision of ourselves, not a clearer reflection of ourselves, but actually by having a clearer vision of God. And that by seeing him, we understand ourselves. So what if we started doing that now? What if we started realizing that to behold God is in fact to become more like him and therefore to become more who we are made to be as his image bearers? Can we get really practical? You got a post-it note you could put on your mirror with a verse of scripture that describes the character of God so that when you look in the mirror and you make sure that you look the way that you want to, you also take a moment to meditate on who God is and allow the image of God to change and to shape you. You know what works really good on mirrors? Dry erase markers, they come off, I promise. Uh, you might even write verse 12 on here. Imagine if you looked in the mirror and said, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known, as I am fully known right now. Paul brings this chapter to a close in verse 13 by saying that we who rank so many things above love as important, he says, remember that love is the greatest. Love is the greatest. Verse 13, you know it. You've seen it on a pillow some sign at Hobby Lobby. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So now, he says, it's, it's probably not, a temp, it's not about time. It's a, it's a summing up of things. It's a, he's concluding things. It's a final, he's drawing the discussion to a close. And in doing so, he introduces this trio of virtues that Paul loves. He uses it throughout all of his other letters. Faith, hope, and love. And he says that these three abide. They, they remain. They last forever. And so we've discovered something. Nothing lasts forever, but love lasts forever. You know what else lasts forever? Faith and hope. Uh, there's a popular notion that in the new kingdom, faith and hope will no longer exist. But Paul doesn't seem to agree with that, does he? He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, they all Abide. Now, how is that possible? Doesn't it seem like hope fades or that faith fades when, when it becomes sight? 
I think our faith will change when we see Christ, but there's also a sense in which we will be resting on him in faith and in trust for all eternity. We will always be trusting in him, always be having faith in him forever. Our hope will change, but if there is a future in heaven, if there can be future when there is no time, I won't try to explain that, but if there is something coming, then there will always be hope. There will be hope for greater glory or hope for enduring glory. Our hope will be certain, but that doesn't mean that it ceases to exist. And love will endure. Love for God, love for others, it will continue as well. But it too will change, won't it? In fact, it could be that we're always growing and going deeper and deeper into love. But why is love the greatest? The greatest of these is love. I'll give you some guesses. It could be that faith and hope are actually less without love. If you go back through and read chapter 13, that this, even in this chapter, faith and hope are tied to love. You, you must have love tied to your faith and your hope. It could be that, that love is the greatest because love shows the glories of the gospel and of the kingdom more than anything else. In contrast to great spiritual gifts or even in contrast to faith and hope, love reveals the glories of what God has done in Christ more than anything else. What does Jesus tell us in John 13? The world will know you are my disciples by your faith, by your hope, by your love. The world will know that you belong to me because of the love that you have for one another. The greatest testimony that we have been changed by the gospel is our love. Love could be the greatest because God is love. God is never said to be faith. God is never said to be hope. But John tells us that God is love. And so we show God to the world and to one another when we clearly love one another. The greatest of these is love. Jonathan Edwards preached a series of sermons on 1 Corinthians 13. And I, I think it was his nephew later on after his, he had passed, it compiled them into a book called Charity and Its Fruits. Charity is the old King James translation of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And the final sermon in that series was a sermon titled, Heaven is a World of Love. What a great title, right? I've never had a title that good in my life. <laughs> Heaven is a World of Love. Isn't that our hope? It's the hope that we have as Christians, a world free from hatred and anger and strife and difficulty and pain, a world of perfect love. And as we love God with our heart and soul and mind and strength, and as we love our neighbors as ourselves, guess what? We bring part of that coming world into the present. We bring the eternal into the here and now. We bring something that will last forever into our lives, into our churches, into our homes, into our workplaces. Love is the greatest because it lasts forever. And you can bring a piece of forever into the present by the power of God. Eternal love in our present world is only possible because of what Christ did in the past. 
And that's why we reflect on the past. And we do that through this beautiful gift that, that God has given us in the Lord's Supper. So today we pause, we, we remember the death of Christ through this gift. We do this to remember Christ. We do this to remember that he alone can save us and draw us into eternal love. We do this to remember that he is coming again and will take us to this place of eternal love. If you are a follower of Christ, if you put your faith and your, your trust in him alone for salvation, you're resting uh, in his death and resurrection as your hope, then I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup with us as we remember him. If not, I would ask that you just uh, abstain. And if you got questions about that, I'm sure Michael or myself or Dan, any of us would be able to talk to you.